Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1944, at the height of World War II, 23-year-old Joseph Bell was a U.S. Navy pilot in the South Pacific. He flew transport planes loaded with cargo and military personnel to U.S. naval bases. One summer day, Bell had a naval intelligence officer as a passenger. Unfortunately, during their flight, the aircraft's engine required some maintenance, forcing Bell to make an unscheduled landing in Guam. To kill time, Bell and the intel officer, who we'll call Tim, went for a drink at the officer's club. And after three rounds of drinks, Tim leaned in and spoke in a low whisper. He told Bell he had been on a top-secret mission. Tim revealed that he had investigated the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor nearly three years earlier. The attack had killed 2,403 people and brought the U.S. into World War II. But based on Tim's investigation, it seemed the attack may not have been a surprise at all. It might have been a cover-up that led all the way to the White House. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our fourth and final episode in a special collaboration with our friends at Dictators as we commemorate the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Last time on Dictators, Kate and Richard explored the swift Japanese domination of the South Pacific led by Prime Minister Hideki Tojo and the ensuing slow retreat as the U.S. ultimately defeated Japan. Today, we'll investigate three American conspiracy theories about alleged Pearl Harbor warning signs. First, that a magazine advertisement had a coded message revealing the attack's date. Second, that the U.S. government covered up a crucial warning that arrived days before the ambush. And finally, that President Roosevelt intentionally provoked Japan into an attack. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. After the Pearl Harbor attack in December 1941, the U.S. immediately entered World War II. Throughout 1942, American soldiers won several key battles against the Japanese and severely weakened its Imperial Navy. But combat wasn't confined to the Pacific. The United States also joined Great Britain, Poland, and France to fight against Nazi Germany in Europe. After Pearl Harbor, the American military was entangled in two violent conflicts on what felt like opposite sides of the world for several more years. The scope of the war later caused some officials to examine if the tragedy that started it all was preventable. 
What if there had been a warning about Pearl Harbor? By 1944, that very question had prompted Tim's clandestine assignment for Navy intelligence. Specifically, Tim was investigating a mysterious ad published in an American literary magazine. Supposedly, it contained clues about the attack. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. Two weeks before Pearl Harbor, the Japanese published an ad in The New Yorker as a coded warning. The November 22nd, 1941 issue of The New Yorker contained a series of strange small ads that culminated in a large advert, which was strange since the first ads in the series didn't even say what they were promoting. Several of the small ads depicted a banner with a headline saying, Achtung, warning, alert, which were cautionary exclamations in German, English, and French. In addition to the written warnings were illustrations of a pair of dice. Their sides displayed multiple numbers, but the most prominent were 12 and 7. This was also odd because those are numerals that aren't usually included on traditional six-sided dice. According to Bell, those digits alarmed the Navy intelligence because they matched the exact date of the Pearl Harbor attack, 12-7 or December 7th. The final, largest ad eventually revealed the product the series was promoting, a dice game called The Deadly Double. Most alarmingly, this ad also claimed that the dice game was perfect for entertainment inside an air raid shelter. This was strange imagery to use in a promotion, especially because the U.S. wasn't at war when the ad was published. To the intelligence officer, the mention of an air raid shelter and the use of deadly in the game's title seemed to warn of an airborne attack. But if it was a coded warning, it still wasn't clear who it was intended for. After all, the Japanese used different complex codes to communicate. Their embassies used the purple code language for diplomatic messages, and the Imperial Navy utilized a different code called JN-25. Yet the Japanese knew that the U.S. military could potentially decode them, so they changed the code keys every day. Maybe the Japanese set up the deadly double ads as an alternative signal outside of their usual codes, just in case the others were compromised. If that were true, to put this message in a widely distributed print publication would be highly unusual and very risky. The advertisement message was printed in about 250,000 copies of that week's issue, which offered plenty of opportunities for the government or civilians to pick up on the warning, too. Tim wanted to learn more about who was behind the ad and questioned the New Yorker's advertising department. A magazine representative revealed that someone purchased the ads in person with cash, but he didn't remember who. While this was unusual, the ad copy itself was put together by an outside agency and given to the magazine, which was a common practice. Soon, Tim discovered something even more puzzling. He couldn't find a record of the actual game being advertised anywhere. Deadly Double didn't seem to exist. While Tim hit a dead end in his search at this point, his suspicions did influence a certain military historian, Ladislaus Fargo. 
23 years later, in 1967, Fargo divulged more details about the theory to help sell his book, The Broken Seal. His publicist circulated a press release about Fargo's take on the allegedly coded advertisement. In it, the author clarified who the deadly double warning might have been for. Japanese agents in the United States who needed to, quote, disband their apparatus. Though Fargo was unclear as to who these Japanese agents were or what disbanding the apparatus truly meant, it could have been in order to destroy purple or JN-25 coding machines, to burn secret documents, or to go into hiding. But that wasn't all. Fargo claimed the deadly double dice didn't just reveal Pearl Harbor's date. It's possible they also contained the ambush's time and location. According to Fargo, the dice in the ads displayed the numbers 0 and 5, which could have stood for the planned time of the attack, 0500 hours or 5 a.m. Even more, he alluded to a pair of X's on the dice, representing the number 20 in Roman numerals, which may have indicated Pearl Harbor's latitude. However, based on what we know about the attack, not all of these figures line up. Pearl Harbor's latitude is 21 degrees north, not 20. And the Imperial Japanese Navy didn't attack at 5 a.m. The Japanese planes took off at 6 a.m. and arrived at Pearl Harbor around 7.49 a.m. However, it's possible Fargo was referring to the original ambush time. According to John Tolan's book, The Rising Sun, the Imperial Japanese Navy had planned to launch the assault right before dawn, which some could interpret as around 5 a.m. in Hawaii. But at the last minute, many of the Japanese pilots pointed out the risks of flying in the dark. So the commanders delayed the attack by a couple hours, which nobody could have predicted in previous coded messages. The theory appeared credible enough to appear in the New York Times. On March 12, 1967, journalist Michael T. Kaufman wrote an article on Fargo's theory. He also included details from an earlier investigation done by another reporter named Gordon Kahn. But the next day, the Times published a different report that seemed to undermine the whole theory. A woman named E. Shaw Cole came forward and claimed her late husband created the deadly double dice game. His name was Roger Paul Craig, and she claimed they wrote the mysterious ad as teasers for the game 26 years before. Cole insisted the game had nothing to do with the war or Japan. She said her husband randomly chose the numbers on the dice. It was all in good fun to sell the game, which really did exist. It even came with its own unique dice numbered with non-traditional figures like 12 and 7. Apparently, many stores in New York sold it back in the 40s. But unfortunately, as Cole told the New York Times, the dice game had poor sales. And on top of this information, Cole said the theory had even been investigated before. She said the FBI visited her and Craig soon after the Pearl Harbor attack in December of 1941. Agents questioned them about the 12 and 7 in the deadly double ad, but concluded that it was, quote, one big coincidence. Exactly six months later, on May 7, 1942, Craig spoke publicly about the FBI investigation in the Los Angeles Times. 
He called the theory, quote, a grossly inaccurate and malicious rumor. The investigations into Cole and Craig seem thorough, but it's hard to deny how many of the deadly double ad numbers match up with the specifics of the Pearl Harbor attack. It seems too eerie that an ad with a tagline from 26 years prior could align so perfectly with the national tragedy. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the absolute truth, I'll give this theory a 3 out of 10. But that's exactly what the FBI concluded. However strange, the ad's numbers were a coincidence. Plus, there's no definitive evidence that Japan was connected to the ad at all. The anonymity of the ad purchase is strange, but I'm more inclined to believe Japan would communicate with its effective system of secret codes, not a public magazine. For me, the theory that Japan used the deadly double ad as a coded warning is a two. If anything, this theory does give way to a larger question. Were there more people who weren't Japanese working against the United States? And if so, were they saboteurs who wanted to harm the country from within? Coming up, the U.S. Navy denies any forewarning about Pearl Harbor. Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. In November 1941, the U.S. military was on high alert. Tensions with Japan were at a fever pitch, and many Americans feared an attack. The U.S. Army and Navy closely monitored Japanese communications, which were usually sent in purple or JN-25 codes. But in the early hours of November 19, 1941, the U.S. Navy intercepted a transmission written in another secret code language called J-19. J-19 was considered a lower priority code, though the message was from Japan's foreign minister to its embassy in Washington, D.C., the U.S. Navy seemingly took this particular message less seriously. In fact, they didn't translate the note until several hours after it was intercepted. When cryptographers finally deciphered it, they realized the message contained yet another Japanese secure language called the WINS code. Allegedly, this new code revealed hints about the impending attack on Pearl Harbor, but was never acted upon by the U.S. Navy. This brings us to conspiracy theory number two. 
the U.S. Navy covered up a warning it received several days before the Pearl Harbor attack. The intercepted J-19 message instructed Japanese diplomats in the U.S. and Latin America to listen carefully to Japanese government weather reports. Specifically, they were to listen for one of three particular climate descriptions. If these descriptions were in the weather broadcast, it meant that Japan's relations with the U.S., Great Britain, or the Soviet Union were in danger. For instance, if the weather report described east wind rain, Japan was ending diplomacy with the U.S., and embassy officials were to destroy all codebooks and classified documents. In other words, these cryptic weather reports were forecasts of imminent war. After intercepting the WINS code on November 19th, the U.S. Navy and the Federal Communications Commission monitored all Japanese weather reports for east wind rain. The Navy called this phrase the WINS execute message. According to Navy Captain Lawrence F. Safford, the WINS execute phrase was finally heard two weeks later at 8 a.m. on December 4th, 1941. Safford sent the winds execute to his commanding officer, Rear Admiral Lee Noyes, the Naval Communications Director. Safford believed that the message would be passed to anyone necessary to prevent a surprise attack. But he was mistaken. Three days later, on December 7th, the ambush did occur, and U.S. defenses were completely unprepared. It was like the warning had never been received at all. In the aftermath, the U.S. government wanted to know what went wrong with their intelligence systems. One inquiry opened that same month would become known as the Roberts Commission. And according to author Robert B. Stinnett, Noyes may have known an investigation was coming just a few days after the attack. So on December 11, 1941, Noyes ordered his department to destroy, quote, anything in writing. Stinnett implied that the Admiral issued this directive to conceal any evidence that the Navy was at fault. But Noyes later denied this. He claimed he had asked his subordinates to destroy personal notes, but not official documents. But there was one message that wasn't gone. The winds execute. Around December 15th, four days after Noyes ordered any written notes destroyed, Safford looked through Noyes' materials and saw the winds execute warning among them. Safford was relieved to see the message, since it was proof that he did his job, or so he thought. Later in December, though, the Roberts Commission investigation made no mention of the winds execute. Safford started to wonder if the warning somehow slipped through the cracks. And when he went to check naval files again, the message was gone. According to the NSA history program, Safford believed that the government was covering up the winds execute warning. It's possible that someone destroyed it before it reached Navy archives. Finding that piece of paper became Safford's obsession. He searched Navy records for years to no avail. And even though he couldn't find the actual message, he collected any corroborating evidence he came across. In 1943, Safford reached out to Commander Alwyn Kramer, the officer who originally translated the Winds Execute message on December 4, 1941. 
In a series of letters, Safford claimed that while he couldn't find the message, he did have proof of the cover-up, along with about 15 witnesses. Though Safford didn't say what the evidence was, his claim was enough to persuade Kramer to tell his side of the story. In 1944, Safford pleaded his case at three different Pearl Harbor hearings, and Kramer joined him. Together, they testified that the winds execute did exist, at least at one point. But U.S. government and Navy officials expressed skepticism at every inquiry. No matter how comprehensive Safford's presentations were, no one was willing to believe him without the actual message. Safford wasn't discouraged, though. He continued making his case at other inquiries. Unfortunately, his most credible witness became very unreliable. Over time, Kramer's details about the winds execute became more vague. At one hearing, he forgot who initially showed him the message. At another, Kramer didn't recall that the winds execute was hidden in weather reports. Some believe that the Navy was behind Kramer's so-called memory lapses. Psychologist George Victor wrote in his book, The Pearl Harbor Myth, that the Navy allegedly pressured Kramer to weaken his testimony. In early 1945, Kramer was reportedly admitted to a psychiatric institution after intense questioning. Later that year, Kramer told a friend that someone advised him, quote, to speak right or undergo more mental treatment. If this was the case, the pressure may have influenced Kramer during a May 1945 inquiry. In the course of his interview, he completely recanted his previous statements about the winds execute. Kramer said he had no recollection of the message. He claimed he had only just heard about it a year earlier. Soon, Safford's other witnesses also withdrew their testimony. Without them on his side, Safford's case crumbled. He presented at another inquiry in January 1946, but just like before, no one believed him without proof of the message. It took nearly 15 years for any new evidence to surface, but in 1960, an unexpected source came forward, a Japanese intelligence agent. According to the NSA history program, this agent told the U.S. Navy that a coded weather report did air on Japanese national radio, but it was on a different date than Safford's recollection. The Japanese agent claimed that the winds execute aired on December 7, 1941, at 8 a.m. Hawaiian time, when the Pearl Harbor attack was already underway. That story proved that there was indeed a winds execute message after all. The code actually existed, and the message was sent. Safford and Kramer may have just gotten the date wrong. Or perhaps the meaning was lost in translation. There have been other Japanese accounts of the winds execute message explaining when it was sent and what it contained. For instance, the NSA's history program report claimed that a Japanese radio employee said the message wasn't about Japan's relationship with the U.S., but with Great Britain. While the content of the winds execute message continues to be debated, one thing seems clear, it did exist. And it's possible that Safford came across at least one warning message back in 1941. Otherwise, how did he know about it? 
the fact that the message he saw went missing, under extremely suspicious circumstances, suggests there is more to his claim than meets the eye. That's why I give the theory that the U.S. Navy covered up a missed warning a 7 out of 10. It seems likely that the Japanese used the WINS code and probably broadcast warnings with it. Kramer's behavior also strikes me as odd, especially for someone who initially supported Safford's case. However, there's still no other proof of Safford's message that was supposedly relayed before Pearl Harbor. Without it, I'm going to give this theory a 5 out of 10. While both theories we've covered so far deal with potential secret warnings before the attack on Pearl Harbor, neither explains something important. Why didn't anyone heed the red flags that Japan was planning an ambush? Politics may be the answer. U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt wanted to enter World War II, but he needed something big to justify going to war, like a surprise attack which has caused many to wonder if a sitting president would allow the deaths of more than 2,000 Americans in order to gather support for war. Coming up, Franklin D. Roosevelt hatches a dangerous plan. Now, back to the story. Many people believe there were warnings before Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, but the question remains why no one took action on any of them. One explanation centers on the most powerful person in the U.S. at the time, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, or FDR. In the late 1930s, FDR signed several laws to keep the U.S. neutral in the conflict brewing in Europe, though he wanted to support the Allies. After World War I, the American people refused to get involved in foreign wars, Without support, FDR couldn't authorize any kind of support for the war effort. Since the U.S. couldn't directly join the war, perhaps it could provoke an attack using economic policy, specifically an attack on U.S. soil, which might incite the American population to finally go to war. This brings us to conspiracy theory number three. FDR knowingly provoked Japan to ambush the U.S., and allowed the Pearl Harbor attack to happen. Throughout 1940, World War II raged in Europe. The U.S. watched with concern for its closest ally, Great Britain. By the summer of 1940, Nazi soldiers overtook Paris and most of northern France. Suddenly, the war was dangerously close to Great Britain. Its shore was little more than 20 miles away across the English Channel. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill knew it was only a matter of time before Germany invaded. And if Germany gained control of Britain, Hitler could attack the U.S. next. On October 7, 1940, Lieutenant Commander Arthur H. McCollum sent a five-page memo to several high-ranking Navy captains. It has become known as the McCollum Memo. In it, he detailed a plan to help the U.S. enter World War II to support Great Britain. But it didn't involve any direct battle with Nazi Germany. Instead, McCollum suggested that the U.S. Navy keep a majority of its Pacific fleet in Pearl Harbor. After that, McCollum urged an embargo on all trade with Japan. 
since the island nation turned to other countries like the U.S. for supplies like rubber and oil, any change in supply would bring severe consequences. In fact, in the early 1940s, Japan received a staggering 60% of its oil from the United States. The Japanese military desperately needed it to fuel its war effort. Not only would a U.S. ban on Japanese trade curb supply, it had immense potential to anger the Japanese government. McCollum outlined this in his plan and said, quote, If by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. Essentially, McCollum wanted to provoke a Japanese attack against the U.S. to secure public support to enter the war. And one historian theorized that this memo inspired FDR's actions moving forward. In his book, Day of Deceit, Navy veteran Robert B. Stinnett wrote that FDR used McCollum's plan to instigate the Pearl Harbor attack. We should note, though, that McCollum only sent the memo to other Navy captains. That didn't necessarily mean it reached FDR. In fact, Stinnett wrote that there was no record of the president ever seeing McCollum's memo. But Stinnett also noted that the captains who received the memo were among FDR's closest advisors. And one in particular, Dudley W. Knox, immediately wrote a response to the memo agreeing with McCollum's proposal. There wasn't any evidence that Knox passed the proposal on to FDR. But Stinnett implied that McCollum had the president's ear after writing his memo. A week later, on October 16th, McCollum sent another war-related memo and addressed it to the, quote, aide to the president. We still don't know who that person was or if it was even meant for FDR himself. Regardless of who McCollum wrote to, though, it's hard to deny that following McCollum's memo, FDR's actions seem to align with the provocation plan. On October 8, 1940, the day after McCollum issued his first memo, FDR talked about keeping the Pacific Naval Fleet in Pearl Harbor. But the president didn't immediately implement the other trade-related steps. It seemed FDR was waiting for the right moment to enact the embargo on exports to Japan. After all, it would have been odd for the U.S. to abruptly cut off trade with Japan, a major oil buyer. In 1940, the countries appeared to be willing business partners, and the U.S. was still trying to recover from the Great Depression. But throughout 1941, Japan allied with Nazi Germany and invaded several Southeast Asian countries. The U.S. was worried that its Pacific territories, like the Philippines and Guam, would be next. So the U.S. and Japan engaged in negotiations to maintain peace. FDR had Secretary of State Cordell Hull engage in the talks, and that may be the reason for the lag time between steps. According to Charles Callan Tansel's book, Backdoor to War, Hull was much more patient than FDR. The president wanted to use more forceful tactics like the trade ban. Nevertheless, FDR may have intended for the talks to eventually fail. In a letter dated December 14, 1940, Joseph Grew, the American ambassador to Japan, warned the president the Japanese would notice if the U.S. didn't genuinely try to reach an agreement. A few weeks later, on January 21, 1941, FDR responded in his own letter defending, quote, our attitude towards Japan. 
He told Gru that if Japan continued invading Southeast Asian countries, it could weaken Great Britain's chances against Germany. FDR emphasized that his main goal wasn't necessarily to protect U.S. territories in the Pacific, but to help Great Britain win the war, which hinted that the Japanese talks needed to fail. So in July of 1941, when Hull's negotiations with Japan did reach a stalemate, FDR finally implemented the next step, the trade embargo. The U.S. cut off Japan from oil, causing tensions between the countries to escalate. And McCollum was right. The trade ban did provoke Japan to attack the U.S. It was certainly suspicious that FDR seemed to follow McCollum's suggestions if he didn't read the memo. However, it's possible that McCollum's memo didn't actually inform FDR's approach. Rather, FDR's own policies may have inspired McCollum's plan in the first place. In fact, FDR and McCollum weren't the only members of the Roosevelt administration who thought the U.S. should encourage a Japanese attack. It seemed to be a prominent sentiment with his close advisors. Most notably, FDR's Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, may have famously written about it in his diary. In an entry recorded on November 25, 1941, Stimson detailed a meeting with FDR. There, the president speculated that Japan might attack the U.S., and according to Stimson's diary, it could happen as soon as December 1st. And that may have been the biggest proof that FDR knew all along. In the diary entry, Stimson continued, writing, quote, The question was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Later on, Stimson came under fire for using the word maneuver. Many researchers have called it proof that FDR wanted to instigate Japan all along. And Stimson never denied that was his intention. Over four years later, in 1946, he submitted a written statement to the Joint Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack. In his prepared statement, Stimson provided the relevant passages from his diary. Then, two of his colleagues were asked about Stimson's use of the word maneuver. While neither admitted to any manipulative tactics, they did confess to one stark reality. Some U.S. officials had been waiting for Japan to attack first, as this would help the government gain support for the war from the American public. In other words, the U.S. government was willing to risk the deaths of thousands of people so it could justify entering World War II. It's still unclear if FDR and his closest advisors exploited diplomacy to make that happen. The McCollum memo did have some interesting coincidences, but we can't confirm if FDR read it. It's also possible that provoking Japan was his policy all along, which undermines the notion that it all started with the McCollum memo. For that reason, I'm giving this conspiracy a 4 out of 10. I'm a little less skeptical. With Stimson's diary entry, along with the steps laid out in McCollum's plan, there's an undeniable consensus. The American government seemed extremely adamant about Japan attacking first. And maybe it was ready to do anything to ensure that happened. I'm inclined to give this theory an 8 out of 10. 
If there's one thing to be said about all three of these theories, it's that they've benefited from the hindsight that comes with time. Naturally, after a national tragedy like Pearl Harbor, people look for answers wherever they can find them, even if the explanations are tenuous, and even if it means looking back to find warnings in magazines, weather reports, and the president's pattern of diplomacy. But as the saying goes, hindsight is 2020. These possibilities may exist only because we can look back and see the coincidences from a bird's eye view. We can never be sure what happened before the attack on Pearl Harbor, but we can be certain that December 7, 1941, will never be forgotten. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories and Dictators for our four-part collaboration on Pearl Harbor. We'll be back next time with a new Conspiracy Theories episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Andrew Messer and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time, and catch new episodes Mondays, free and only on Spotify.